Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. So Ramu Damodaran, thank you for coming on the podcast. Could you please tell us a little bit about your background, who you are? Oh, thank you, David. I spent most of my working life at the United Nations, something I was incredibly fortunate to be able to do. I started my career really as a, as a diplomat, a member of the Indian Foreign Service, and um, served in our embassies in Moscow and at the United Nations in New York, as well as a couple of longer spells in, in Delhi. And then about um, 30 years ago in 94, I was asked to join the UN on a more or less permanent basis initially in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, which had suddenly burgeoned with a number of um, missions that we had in the early 90s. And then eventually, my substantive career in the Department of Global Communications, where I was fortunate to be asked to devise and to lead a program called the United Nations Academic Impact, which brought universities and institutions of higher education research Into alignment, I would say, not necessarily complete um, synchronicity, but working with the UN towards common cause. Very impressive. Starting your career with the UN, I started at Baskin-Robbins, scooping ice cream, so almost the same thing. Uh, Could you please walk me through what it's like coming from India to Moscow and then to New York? How would you kind of map? Is there a culture shock involved there? Or if it's coming from India, are you immune to culture shock? I was, I think, uh, David, a little protected or inured from the culture shock because I grew up in a in a diplomatic household. My father was a member of the Indian Foreign Service, so I spent the first 10 years of my life wandering from Colombo in today's Sri Lanka to Prague in uh, today's Czechia to Bonn, Berlin, Beijing, or at that time Peking, as it was called, and then came back to India and then went and visited my parents on vacation when they were in Moscow and Sweden and later finally in Rome in Italy. So I've personally had a, a lesser degree, if you will, of, of, uh, of cultural novelty when traveling to places, and especially Moscow since I've been there for five summers as a, as a school and college student. It was wonderful to go back there, and it's one of the reasons that I I opted for the Russian language and going to Moscow. I should also mention, and this is probably really a bit um, historic, I was there in really the high point and yet the beginning of the decline of what was then Soviet Union. It was being ruled by a very aging troika of Leonid Brezhnev, Alexei Kasikin, and Nikolai Podgorny. And as you might know relations with India were excellent. So we were warmly welcomed there, not only as diplomats, but also as students at the university studying the Russian language. And the other thing is that India culturally has had, or did have, an access to the Soviet Union, which most of the West did not, because the West, in terms of culture, movies, literature, state shows, was certainly considered to be a little antithetical to the Soviet idea, while India was seen to be broadly not a threat or not someone to, or not an entity to channel them. And I found Russian friends 
who were far more knowledgeable about, say, Hindi film than I was because they'd been to see all of them dubbed in Russian. They knew the plot lines, they knew the actors and the actresses. And most of all, they knew the songs which were never dubbed because the the, the tunes were left intrinsically on their own. Um, I suppose, in a sense, a culture awakening, because as I mentioned, most of the places I went to with my parents were really in, in Europe and uh, to an extent in Asia. My first visits to the United States, which began when I was at the ministry in Delhi and came to the General Assembly sessions of the United Nations in, beginning in 1982, really gave me an exposure to a land I'd only seen and that too very marginally in television shows and I must add in comics. I'm not sure if you or your generation are as familiar as mine was with, with comic books, but then we grew up with Archie, with Richie Rich, with Dennis the Menace. And that was certainly to our mind a, a quintessentially American exposure, which we looked forward to at some point savoring it firsthand. And I got that first-hand measure when I did visit New York and eventually when I came to stay here. Very interesting. Very uh, admirable, envious of, of your uh, your childhood experience traveling the world. Did you ever read Tintin? You know that Tintin and, and Asterix are two characters I was almost colorblind to. I could never really relate to them. I had a a very good Belgian friend who was extremely offended by, by my lack of familiarity with, uh, with Tintin. And similarly, friends who, I, you know, maybe if I began to seriously read them now, I might enjoy them because a lot of what I've eavesdropped upon them are things like wordplay and double and so on, which is something which I'm fascinated by, which you completely missed in the comics that I've been talking about. Yeah, each comic I think has its uh, its strengths, and especially upon repeated, uh, you know, right. reading. Uh, so they're not just for for children, I would argue, in, in many respects. So you are perhaps more well traveled and more experienced diplomatically than your average person. I'm curious. Right now, you're in the U.S. Uh, in New York, uh, New York State, and but you've really traveled the world, lived the world to to an extent. How would you describe Soviet Russia to a Western audience that has heard of this Iron Curtain and perhaps even closed-mindedness, but it seems like in some respects you're saying they're more open-minded, more accepting and uh, figure on the pulse in some respects than perhaps the US would be led to believe. Could you help us understand the humanity and the spectrum of uh, life experience? The administration in the Soviet Union, particularly the one that that I witnessed firsthand, was extremely adroit in creating opportunities for recreation and leisure within the limitations of their political system. And so, as I mentioned, you didn't have uh, American films or British plays or even much of West European music. But you had a great deal from parts of the world like India, with whom the Soviet Union was politically comfortable. And you also had, there was a, an entity called, I think it was called the People's Publishing House, a predictable name, which came up with translations of American works or British works, which passed muster and were not seen to be uh, possibly incendiary. So you did, you walked into a bookstore and you suddenly found one particular translation of, say, Charles Dickens, or a translation of Somerset Maugham. 
But it was that one book which had passed the litmus test and then was there for people to buy and to savor. So I think the Soviet Union, it obviously had at a very functional level tremendous advantages. There was good health care, prices of things that you could find in, in stores were extremely reasonable. You could buy my, my I mean, you mentioned uh, Baskin Robbins, and I think your principal challenger in the Moscow of my time would have been these little kiosks called Marozhna, the Russian for ice cream. And they had an incredible array of flavors and textures. There was one particular one, which was almost like a, a vanilla cone, but baked into the cone. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't inserted in the cone. It was an integral part, I suppose. Somewhat like the Chipwich ice creams that you might find now. And on top of each one, there's very intricately drawn, I mean, uh, drawn with, uh, with icing sugar, flour, and those sold for the equivalent of a quarter, the equivalent of 25 cents. So you had things which were available, were available at a price that everyone could afford. But equally true, a great deal of what people wanted was simply not available. And in, um, in the Soviet Union, there was this popular idiom of something called the Mojit beat bag. Now, Mojit beat means maybe. So you carry a bag with you on the off chance that in a store you find something which has suddenly come to the shelves and you buy six or seven of them because you want to stock them up at home. And again, one of the indicators about where to go to and what to buy as you wander the city was where you saw the lines outside stores. If you saw a line outside a store, you could be almost certain that something which was otherwise in short supply had just arrived and people were queuing up to buy it. So there was that, both that tension and that balance and that contradiction, if you will, in aspects of Soviet life. To an extent, we were protected or had better fortune as foreign diplomats. We had a whole range of uh, grocery stores and supermarkets, which were only accessible to foreigners because you had to pay there in, uh, not in rubles, not in the Russian or the Soviet currency, but in the equivalent of dollars or pounds or francs or whatever it was. And so we had a far greater array at our disposal. Plus, we had an excellent um, shipping service from, from uh, somewhere, again, you must be familiar with, Copenhagen yeah. uh, in, in Denmark. And they had two major firms there which used to, you sent them a, it was before fax and email and so on, you sent them a, a letter saying what you wanted and was shipped to you and reached you within three weeks. I love the uh, the approach to business. Like every every situation uh, it gives rise yeah. to a business opportunity. That's an interesting, you mentioned about um, certain media being translated that passed muster. And I had a conversation with a colleague a few days ago, this notion of like uh, information diet being conscious of what you're digesting online or whatever, just like you would with food. Like we don't fill ourselves up on cheese exclusively. And I was curious, given that you've been exposed to quite a bit from a young age, very adept, no doubt, at um, crossing borders and having conversations with different viewpoints, what are your thoughts about dieting information, either 
uh, being like a self-imposed diet. Each individual chooses what information they digest or that being made for you. Is it, are we untrustworthy as individuals and we need someone else to um, make rules on the road so we don't speed, et cetera? Do we need something similar for uh, information? I was just curious. Uh, I realize it's a little bit controversial, but given your experience, uh, could you help me um, understand a little bit more about that? I'm not sure, David, whether my my thoughts on this really derive from my my direct work or other experience or just what I sense as as now a consumer and practitioner of of information, not 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 just in a professional sense, but in a very lay sense as well. And I think the most important thing, and that's why your analogy of of food dieting or food choices is so apt. It's really a question of self-restraint. And to give you just one example, I mean, I just wish, and I'm as guilty, so I can't really point a finger, but I just wish that people would pause, take a breath before pressing forward or repost on something which they receive on social media. Because it might be something interesting, it might be something compelling, it might be something completely new and shocking, but you still have to give yourself that measure of time to determine, is it true? Or if it's not true, then label it as fiction, but fiction trying to make a point, not fiction masquerading as fact. So that's the one thing I would say. The other, I think, is that we have to, and this probably derives from self-restraint as well, we have to really rejoice in the choices before us and and explore and possibly revel in each choice before setting it aside. I'm an instinct uh, email subscriber. If I, if I come across a new site and I get a little box pops up saying, if you want to be on our emailing list, put your email in, I do that. So every morning I find about 40 or 50 emails to me from these various sites. And I realize in good confidence that I don't go through more than 10 or 12 of them. But again, this is a failing because I should allow myself to decide which of the 40 I want to follow fairly regularly. And a couple of times when I have made that decision, it's really been extremely rewarding because I've come across news I would not have known and news which is of relevance to me. And more important, ideas well expressed. And that's the great beauty of information now. The craft of writing, the craft of communication, and the right of, or the, or the art, if you will, of trying to grip a person's attention by the sheer power of language is something which I envy and which really is my standard, if you will, for what I want to read. Lovely points. I think not having expectations puts you in a position to really appreciate an experience, be that reading a book or a newsletter or travel. I went to Japan uh, almost on a whim. I was planning to go to London because I wanted to pick up a British accent like you. I thought it sounded smarter. And friends convinced me to go to Tokyo instead with them. They said, if you don't come now, when would you go? And I didn't have a good answer. So I went with them. I had zero expectations, no wish list, no landmarks to see. Just, I'm in Japan. I like sushi. Let's see what we see. Absolutely loved it. Went back the next year and then went back for the next decade. And I was tour guide 
And I told my clients on day one, I recommend you. I know you've saved up for this. You're looking forward to this and that's all great. But to the extent that you can, I would erase all that from your mind and just be open to what happens, not have any expectations because that's what I did and I wound up loving it. And what you said about the newsletters and, and stumbling upon that information in a way that you could appreciate it reminded me of that decision. Absolutely. So talking about diet, an easy question for you, being well-traveled. What's like your number one favorite dish? Strangely enough, the one that you just mentioned, I'm not so uh, sure whether it would be you know, sushi or more, more particularly sashimi. Okay. But um, I, I've, um, well, for two reasons. One, it's not something very common in India. In fact, I don't think I ever had uh, Japanese food in the sushi sashimi sense growing up. Or even when when I was um, at these various places with my with my parents, I really got exposed to it when I first came to to the United States to New York in the in the mid eighties. And I think what um, what really appeals to me is that intrinsic idea of something untempered and unspoiled. And I enjoy I, I enjoy my own food, Indian food, tremendously. But I realize that ultimately what I'm enjoying is not the pristine quality of the protein or the grain or the vegetable that is there before me, but the way it has been in one sense masked, in another sense enhanced by the flavors that have come through, through the spices and the combinations of initiatives that the cook puts forward. With sashimi, you really have only two rules to follow, freshness and cleanliness. And the idea that you could go and enjoy an entire meal, albeit uh, not necessarily very inexpensively, but you can enjoy an entire meal savoring just the food as it was intended to be and not the way it is crafted, however artistically, I think gives it, to my mind, a major plus point. I agree. It took me a little while to appreciate that. I asked uh, some Japanese friends what their favorite food was. And they said rice more often than not. And that blew my mind. Like how rice and what? Rice and some kind of seasoning, no doubt. Rice and some topping. But no, just rice. And there's many different types of rice in Japan from different regions. And just like wine, you can start to develop a palate for it. And you can start to say, oh, this rice is from this province. So this rice is this type of rice. And it kind of, like you mentioned about slowing down and pausing and just appreciating that for a moment has such a profound effect on your life. Like you could look at a flower and just really appreciate life. And uh, everywhere you go, like we talked about, just taking in the, the experience. So yeah, I, I had really thought of uh, sashimi quite the way that you put it, but I think that that maps to what I appreciate about it as well. So that's no, nice. I see that for the rice as well. Uh, I've always enjoyed the rice that comes with sashimi or with the Japanese meal entirely on its own. I, I mean, I, I do occasionally throw in a bit of ginger or soya and, and add a flavor, but even the rice intrinsically, what they sometimes call uh, sushi rice on the, on yep. the menu, it's it's got that, it, it's got elements, obviously. It's got vinegar sometimes. It's got um, other, it's got a bit of uh, nori and things. So it depends on how you how you handle it. But the whole idea of something as essential to Asian cuisine, certainly to Indian cuisine, right. as rice, 
being savored for itself, which we'll find in very few Asian cultures, with the exception of Japan. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really fascinating how we inspire each other. Uh, in many ways, Japan was the recipient of a lot of the innovation coming out of India via China and Korea. And yet it, it kind of starts re-inspiring uh, the origin. And that's the cross-pollination that I really like. And that's what I'm, you know, in some small way trying to do with this platform and sharing different viewpoints and uh, opportunities in different markets. So going back to the hard questions, world peace. I always thought that the easiest way would be to have an alien invasion. Uh, it would bring everyone together, have a new outside, like green aliens or whatever the case may be. And now it seems in some way, perhaps that's artificial intelligence. And I was curious, pros and cons, in some way artificial intelligence could uh, be the median and just understand the viewpoints because by and large, I'd say we're very similar in that we want love, delicious food, laughter, novel experiences, some sort of status, and AI might be able to give that to us. Or AI could be that external threat that we wind up uh, coming together in adversity. I was curious, how do you see it? We've both been involved with this wonderful organization called the Boston Global Forum, which uh, when it was first established uh, more than 10 years ago, was really looking at the power and the beauty and the potential of the internet and of um, issues related to it, including cybersecurity. And then suddenly the last few years, the whole question of, of AI has come up. I have a feeling that, again, this goes back to the uh, the point that I was making earlier about, about media, the whole necessity for self-restraint. And I think that we were in a very similar situation in 1945 when the United Nations began. Because David, remember when the United Nations Charter was signed in June 1945, we were really, the, the definition we had of war or uh, aggression was what the world had experienced during the Second World War. And the United Nations were there to ensure it did not happen again. But between June, when the Charter was signed, and October, when the United Nations actually came to be, we had this major punctuation point in August when the atomic bombs were dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Good. And so we had a wholly new dimension of both power mm-hmm. and threat, which is not envisaged when the United Nations Charter was drawn up. Interesting. And so the very first resolution of the United Nations General Assembly in uh, January 1946 was titled On the Problems Created by the Discovery of Atomic Energy. And if you take that analogy to our world today, you realize that just as the whole imperative of the atomic energy age was self-restrained on the part of those nations or governments who had atomic power or nuclear power, so too now is the imperative to have self-restraint by those who can wield the power of artificial intelligence. The difference being, as as we know, that it goes far beyond governments. It goes to corporations. It goes possibly even to individuals. It goes to entrepreneurs. And so there is this whole balance between self-restraint in the sense of what is inimical or menacing or dangerous, self-restraint to what is purely commercial 
or seeking quick turn profit. All these are nuances and balances which I hope can be agreed to by what we at the Boston Global Forum call an artificial intelligence world society and a social contract for the AI age, a social contract which brings in everyone, governments, citizens, corporations, universities, thinkers, scholars, and, and come up with this. And I see absolutely no reason it would be almost frankly criminal for us to deny ourselves some of the clear benefits of AI, particularly in fields like public health or individual health or exploration of the mind. But also, we have to realize that there is a point where some form of both global and national regulation or regional, as in the case of the European Union, is necessary. Do you think that we could have a global union? I know the UN is kind of coming together. It's not quite like the United States or the European Union, but is that where we're headed? And do you, do you think that that's something we could see by the end of the century? I'm fairly optimistic it is because I'm optimistic only because the United Nations that, um, that I see today or we see today is so vastly different from the United Nations that I first walked into, as I said, in uh, 1982. And it's been what I can't even um, count, but it's been more than 40 years almost, or virtually 40 years. And I would never have thought when I came to the United Nations in the in the 80s that we would want that we would have an international agreement which compelled nations to work with each other on how they dealt with their own peoples. And that is re really what we have in the Sustainable Development Goals. You have Sustainable Development Goals on issues like poverty or hunger or education or gender rights, which are normally considered to be within the domestic province of each nation. And yet now, 193 nations have got together saying, this is an international responsibility that we are going to exercise towards our own people. So that changed within a matter of 25 years. And we still have more than 75 years left in this century. So I'm very optimistic that we can have some sort of an international mechanism which will help regulate this. And more important, as I said, a mechanism which will bring into play not only governments, but also every possible player in the realm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to see how that unfolds. Going back a little bit into your past, uh, maybe not so much uh, back in the past, but could you talk a little bit more about the academic impact that you're involved with in the UN? The idea behind the academic impact was fairly straightforward. It was that we have this tremendous uh, community of research on subjects which are not immediately linked as disciplines to the United Nations. If you went in, in the 1990s or early, um, early 2000s and asked universities, do you have courses relevant to the United Nations? The answers would almost predictably be international relations, law, political studies. At the most, you might have a very boutique area like, say, environmental studies, which had just come up because of the obvious interest in a global management of the commons. 
But no one really think of subjects like physics or chemistry or biology or architecture or engineering as compellingly UN relevant. And the point that we were trying to make in the academic impact is that if you agree that the purpose of scholarship is to enlarge the canvas of human knowledge and consciousness to better conditions for human beings everywhere, then that's exactly what the United Nations was established to do. So there's a complete sink there which has to be explored. And so all that we said we would aim for is ask each university that joined the academic impact to look at the work they were doing in a human-centered focus, which really became, therefore, a United Nations focus, and hence the whole, and, and hence the term academic impact, that this is an impact that scholarship makes on the lives of children and women and men everywhere. And I'm proud to say we now have almost 2,000 institutions that are members of it. I realize that there are many institutions that have chosen not to be uh, members of it. To my mind, not for the most persuasive of reasons. Some of them feel that anything connected with the United Nations is by definition political, and they would prefer their universities or their institutions to be outside politics. But fair enough. That's, that's something which I think might change with time or it may not. But I'm also conscious of the fact that many of the universities that have not joined the academic impact are doing stellar work in on the lines of what members of the academic impact are doing. So in that sense, it's really a win-win situation for all. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize there were that many universities already a part of it, and I assume still growing. Yeah, absolutely. So where would you like to travel next for pleasure? I'm just curious, being all the places you've been. I think what I would really like to do, and I've been to, to that country before, and I'm talking about Italy, I've been to Italy before, but in in sort of um, in small bites, as it were, in portions. I really would like to wander Italy, and and one of the dreams I've always had is wander Italy and stay in uh, in monasteries and convents and the like, many of which are now admit uh, visitors or overnight guests and so on, on on payment. So it's not really barging into a into a prefectory or anything, but then going there purely as you would to a hotel. I was fortunate to be able to do that in, uh, I think in the year 2001, if I'm not mistaken, when I went to Assisi. I was in Rome for work and I went to Assisi on a holiday and I stayed in the convent there, which was run by a very vivacious and almost boisterous group of nuns. It was such fun. But the whole idea of being there, the lawns and the grounds were Splendid. The town itself, as you probably know, is is remarkable. And creature comforts in terms of the room and the food and so on. There's nothing one could ask for more. So I would like to do that at some point, just wander through that lovely country and uh, almost pretend that I'm in the 16th century, but not deny myself 21st century comforts. <laughs> Love it. I haven't done that yet. But I did perhaps something similar in Japan, a temple stay, a Buddhist temple stay. Have you ever tried that? Well, we went to Japan in uh, in March and stayed at a, a ryokan, yep. which was obviously not like a temple stay. But then 
we went um, and spent an afternoon at a temple with their, you know, their, as you must have experienced, the vegetarian lunch you have at a temple is probably remarkable, more splendid in many ways than a than a regular um, regular restaurant Japanese meal because it's so carefully and intricately done. And again, too, it's almost to go back to our earlier conversation. It's almost the vegetarian equivalent of sashimi because again, every vegetable, every grain, is allowed to take on its own form and flavor without too much being added on to it. At the most, uh, dab of vinegar, occasionally a bit of um, sea salt, or on the side you might have a, 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 a bit of shiso or the like. But otherwise, it's really the inherent indigenous flavor of the fruit and vegetable that come through. And that was certainly an experience. And the creativity with which they use the different ingredients. So for example, with soy, they can make uh, yuba, which is like the curd yes. at the top of the, the soy as they cook it. And they can do magical things with that. I, I don't know off the top of my head how many variations there are, but they can make it look and taste, like you mentioned, textures before. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting experience. And that denial of distraction in many respects, like you don't have so many shops or television stations or other things to uh, excite the senses. So you're just fully focused on the silence and the flavor. And it's just, yeah, it's a really nice experience. Um, so I, I only did it for like 24 hours uh, a few times, uh, but it, it would be interesting to go for like a longer, maybe 10 day or two week. So you stayed at the temple. Yes. Yeah. Just for one night and then wake up really early in the morning with the, the monks to do the, um, I guess, the recitation, the uh, prayer, if you will. Uh, I'm not personally Buddhist, but I admire the the discipline and the the practice. Um, and yeah, I wholeheartedly recommend it to anybody. I believe there are a couple of these um, Buddhist uh, overnight monasteries in the United States as well. Okay. Where you can see it's um, both Japanese and and Southeast Asian. And um, I don't know if they're still there, but I'd read about these 10, 15 years ago and always Interesting. wanted to go, but I haven't yet got around to it. Because I believe they might follow two different sects of Buddhism, being Southeast That's Asian possible. and yeah. Japanese. So so they basically come together. It's like a miniature UN of Buddhism. Yes, yes. Fascinating. Yeah, I would be interested in, in learning more about that. So to close, uh, you have all the powers in all the world for one day. What do you do? What needs changing? As far as like our, our global community, you know, from a UN perspective, I guess I should specify a little bit more. <laughs> Again, I come back to that same, same point, which I probably is a little tired by now, but but each question you ask brings it to mind in a wholly different way. And that's again self-restraint. Okay. I mean if we if we think about what we need most, and if you think of this uh, magical 24 hours in which you could transform uh, the planet and those who who are fortunate to live upon it. It's self-restraint in the sense of political or military ambition, political or military power, political or military recklessness. All of this has to be not necessarily curtailed by external forces, which has all too often been done, but by the person who is capable of exercising or misusing that power herself or himself. It's also true of the larger planet in which we live, self-restraint in terms of exploiting 
the resources with which our world is blessed and which are tragically finite and very limited and which often mitigate and clash with each other as we deplete one and and uh, find the others that are not yet depleted at risk. There's self-restraint in the in the terms of of ideas and persuasion of wanting others to necessarily think as you do or of feeling that the way that you think is the only correct way there is. That's very well said and definitely resonates. And I, I think it's probably all the more true if you're saying all the things we've touched on that keeps coming back to self-restraint. I'm curious about the last point you just made, given my, my own experience. I don't know what I think, to be honest with you. And I feel often I'm speaking as if I do. And I wonder to how, like, how broad is that? Is that all of us? Do we actually know what we think? Because things are moving so quickly and we have a quote unquote opinion, but a couple of odd things happen. I don't know that we really have an opinion for one thing. And also, I don't know that our thoughts are supposed to define us. Like we're um, basically taking in data from nature and it's probably a good thing to change our thoughts from time to time because otherwise you're saying when I was five years old, I knew everything and there's no reason to change. I've always been consistent. Uh, so I was just curious, like, what what are your thoughts, given that, about about our opinions and trying to convince people to think like we think when perhaps we don't know ourselves what we think? I think you've put it very well, David, and, and in a sense that um, that actually articulates far more effectively what what that point I was trying to make is, which is that you must have self restraint in in accepting new ideas and new possibilities. So the ideas and possibilities that you had when you were five years old are far more magnified now at this point in your life. And so you have two alternatives before you. You either revel in this exuberance of possibilities and let all the ideas clash and toss themselves in your head and go for whatever appeals to you at any given moment. Or you allow yourself that self-restraint and your quality of life as someone who's now fortunate to be older than five, to be able to use your discernment, use your judgment, and use your sense of self-restraint to be able to weigh which option you feel generally comfortable with and the option which fulfills the other elements of self-restraint in your life political, ecological, environmental, religious, temperamental, any facet of our life, I think, would be an oh, diet for that matter, since we've spent time talking about, about food. So it's all a question of what's the other, other way of putting self-restraint? The idea that I am not the world. The world is not me. There are others. And I don't need to inhibit or limit, demean, diminish, or in any way deny myself by being cognizant of that fact. Well said. I like that line from Amma's message uh, on November 2nd that we saw when she's talking about the, the analogy of the child uh, looking at the sky through the window and claiming it. I, I thought that was beautiful and so so true. Uh, so that five-year-old's still alive and well, I can tell you. But yes, I would like to think I added one or two thoughts uh, to his toolbox. Well, Brahma, 
Thank you very much for talking to me and our audience today. It's fascinating to get your perspective. Um, is there anywhere that you'd like to direct people to follow what you're doing or causes that you care about? Well, do, uh, I mean, if you are interested, please do follow the Academic Impact. It's um, academicimpact.un.org. And that, it, it gives you an idea of what universities around the world are doing in, a, in obviously an abbreviated sense. But I think more important than, than just the program itself, it also shows the, if you will, the enormous convening power of the United Nations in the unlikeliest of constituencies, universities and academic institutions were not very high on the priority list or the obvious list of the UN, and now they are. And if we take that analogy a step further, and this very rich conversation we've had, with both the opportunities and the dangers that the century is going to bring to us, and we've talked about artificial intelligence, we have much more tangible threats and dangers in the sense of pandemics and disease, in the sense of conflict, in the sense of natural disasters. So all of these do need a measure of both regulation and, here I go again, self-restraint. And I think that the United Nations can be the forum to provide those. Well, I think you've given me the title for this podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, great message. It, it is a pleasure, Ramu, and take care. Thank you, David. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.